0: welcome 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 how's everybody doing hope you are doing well my name is Andrew Kuhn from focused compounding on air live with Jeff Gannon Jeff how's it going today it's
1: going very well Andrew how's it going
0: with you it's going great we hope it's going great with everybody else as well if this is the first time you're tuning in with us thank you so much for joining us Uh, be sure to check out all of our content on the internet Uh, Go to focuscompounding.com to get access to investment write-ups from Jeff going all the way back to 2005. Uh, Follow me on Twitter at at Focus Compound and make sure you hit that subscribe button wherever you are listening or watching us here today, uh, which will notify you whenever we upload a new podcast. So Jeffrey, happy belated birthday. Yes, thank you. How was it? We gotta announce we gotta bring the podcast in on it how How was it? You are thirty eight years old? Yes, yeah, good. Good Nothing birthday,
1: Not eventful. yeah, just
0: birthday. another not day birthday. or
1: what? uh, yeah, basically, yeah
0: yeah well, my um my son turned one, and mm-hmm. on my birthday, I'm with you. every single year is just another year. I actually, I'm not a big birthday person. You know how there's some people even as they are into adulthood. And I'm not throwing shade, mm-hmm. but there are some people where their birthday is a big deal to them. It's, you know, their birthday week, their birthday month, their birthday weekend. Uh, mm-hmm. they get excited for their birthday. Right. And it's a milestone. So I'm not here to throw shade. Uh, I'm kind of, uh, in the camp of, it's just another day. I don't really, um, care about it actually. Um, actually as I get older, I kind of get a little bit sadder because i'm like wow how <laughs> where did the past five years go right uh, but mm-hmm. i will say and perhaps people listening can relate it's the first time in a while that i was excited for a birthday and that was my son's first birthday i felt pure joy for him and for his birthday and he knew it was a special day um so yeah you guys are uh three days apart or f- four days apart uh, in your birthdays so um yeah well glad to hear it hope you had a great birthday do you eat some mm-hmm. cake and ice cream or what?
1: No, I did not eat any cake and ice cream. No. <laughs> just the I, really just... I really didn't
0: do anything. Yeah. Really. What about mm-hmm. drink a bunch of coffee, right? That's something that I know you do every single day. That's true, yep. So do you still drink Celsius? I've been drinking these new cans. Uh what's this called? Is it A L A N I? I don't know how to you... Alani maybe? I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's kind of this uh uh similar concept to celsius it's an energy drink have you come across these at all
1: uh no i have had energy drinks before other than celsius but not many
0: Uh uh-huh every time i come across a new energy drink that i like i always look to see if it is public and they are not Mm -hmm. uh, simply because we came across celsius when it was um early on um but uh yeah so 200 milligrams of caffeine pretty good taste not an ad i'm just drinking it right now and and i like it people are always looking at what i'm drinking on the podcast sometimes i'm drinking prime energy sometimes i'm drinking celsius um uh, but i'm trying this new one and it's actually pretty good so you don't drink any celsius anymore
1: no um i think we talked about this i don't really like fruit flavors that much you know all the flavors that people like that they add yeah to you, wouldn't also, you wouldn't like this like also a problem with like um The alcohol mixed things like people, you know, say, do you ever drink those sorts of things? No, Um, because they're usually like exactly things like that. They add flavors like that. I don't like Uh, Celsius originally had like a cola flavor, which didn't really taste like a cola, but it was much more neutral, you know, than like a fruity flavor. And so I drank that one. Um, Mm -hmm. I think I told you the convenience store I went to said like, you know, uh, you're know, you the only one that buys these, but I make sure that I like order a lot of them because of <laughs> so apparently that's why they don't sell that flavor anymore, I guess.
0: Uh-huh. Not I could see either. it. I mean, it honestly didn't taste that much like a cola to me. It mm-hmm. just tasted different than all the fruit flavors that they have yeah. uh, for the rest of their SKU. Interesting. Cool. So we could jump into it. Today is August 17th, 2013. Uh, the sp500 is up 15 percent year to date um the 10-year yield is at 4.298 percent. we're gonna talk a little bit about yields here today uh, just because i think it's interesting um crude oil eighty dollars per barrel and natural gas two dollars and 65 cents um you know we've talked about occidental petroleum on the podcast mm-hmm. and how uh, you believe that buffett believes that he's betting on you know uh oil prices staying higher for longer a few podcasts ago you had just kind of casually mentioned that you had thought that natural gas was undervalued i believe and that you thought it was pretty cheap so we're at two dollars and 65 cents kind of curious just to hear your thoughts on why you think natural gas is cheap
1: so i mean just on like a long-term average for one thing you know um in real terms crude oil would normally be um around 70 or something in today's dollars probably and natural gas around four um so natural gas was very overpriced uh you know compared to long-term averages uh last year and i think i talked about that when i talked about the PV 10 for um the test vts, VTS a- energy um because it's like A meaningful part you know it's more oil than gas but a meaningful part is gas and because it's so gas is so overvalued whereas oil maybe oil ended last year at 90 or something for the PV 10 they the SEC requires them to take the end of each month uh, the last day of each month the 12 average and then average those 12 numbers together so if something like oil or gas is expensive all year round that then affects a lot the valuations that you see and a lot of people just use that in their write-ups or something as if you know, not with talking about what that number means. Um, So already we knew that, you know, using today's prices, it's a lot lower than it was then. But uh, oil didn't wasn't shockingly high or anything at 90. That's, that's pretty normal. Um, But natural gas was very high. I forget for the purpose of PV 10, if it was in the high
0: sixes or something, it was very high on average for last year. Um, mm-hmm.
1: So, yeah, go ahead
0: when you talk about like an average or a normal price of crude oil, natural gas, are you taking into account supply and demand as well? Right. So like how much supply (laughs) there is out there or how much demand, I mean, crude oil, for example, demand for it generally grows one to 2% per year. Right. That's historically what it's done. So I'm curious when you're talking about the average price, what goes into that? Is it just simply like a mean or median of the the price? Exactly. Yeah.
1: So, you know, just taking the, the nominal and the real numbers that we have for each year and looking at them and, um, you know, you'd have the mean, the median, um, and uh, and what was the variation like and what did it look like. That's the other thing to keep in mind. When I say something like 70 would be like a normal number. Um, for a crude oil, that actually means that you should expect prices of $30 a barrel and $110 a barrel to be pretty high probability that if you... Um, Are looking at oil prices for long enough, you'll hit those numbers or you'll hit at least one of them. Uh, A move that big is actually not that uncommon. Um, So, because they both vary a lot year to year, they have pretty high variation in their uh, prices. So, I'm just talking about on average what it's been in the past, you know. Um, That's important because lots of things change over time, right? But the. the, uh, a lot of times people talk about it, I think, can be misleading about, say, what the effect of oil prices is on people or how much it's hurting them or something. And, and so, for instance, you know, oil consumption in the United States per person um, is basically not gone up since the um, energy crisis in the 70s. So it used to go up all the time and then it really hasn't increased since then. And... A big reason for that is you you've had, like, decreases in terms of um, uh, the amount of gas that you would need to travel the same number of miles. So increased um, uh, fuel efficiency, right? So, like, that's one of them recently. So even when people compare, say, a gallon of gas today to what it was in 2007 or whenever, you know, the, the peak was before the financial crisis, they're using a nominal number. And they're also not taking into account that cars today are much more fuel efficient on average. So that combination. So when you adjust it to things like what percentage of household income is going to it or something, you know, it, it's more helps explain what the prices really um, look like compared to going back and saying, Oh, you know, um, you see some old movie, and it shows that gas was 40 cents a gallon, and you think how cheap that was. But as a percentage of people's income or something, it isn't necessarily all that different. The, the cheapest that I can remember is right around 2000, maybe the very late 90s, kind of adjusted for people's incomes and everything would have been the easiest time. And then, like I said, right before the financial crisis was a bad time. You know, So I just think it's important because when people say, like, how high could it go or something and change people's behavior, that's a pr- sort of thing that's important. Um, is to understand that people aren't going to just have a big decrease in, in consumption when they're used to seeing these numbers before. It's just we had a lot of inflation, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so if prices used to be, I mean, given the level of inflation that we've had and are likely to have and stuff, even if it's just that prices were $60 a barrel before, they're going to be 80 just because of that. You know, within a few years, you would get to that point just because of how high the inflation level is just because the money supply increased by that much.
0: Mm-hmm. So I mean, to me, are you would you focus more on like the supply side of things then, right? As it relates to crude oil, um, we talked about so many times on this podcast how this cycle, this time around, it's much more about capital allocation, dividends, free cash flow, buying back stock. Um, there are you know ESG concerns or sort of political mm-hmm. um, reasons that have trickled down to perhaps how these management teams are thinking about what to do with their cash, uh, i.e., not uh increasing you know cap uh production it does take time for these things to to come online like a new well or the permitting process can be longer so you know when you say that crude oil you think could be higher in the future yes you believe that um you know the average price um you know you take that into account as well but do you ever think about like the supply side of thing if you're saying that the demand uh yes cars have become more efficient um Do you ever think about though like the supply side that goes into that which could really influence these uh the the price of crude oil considering you know demand is is pretty consistent for crude oil yeah
1: i don't think it's possible to predict supply stuff without knowing uh price so i don't think that it's really meaningful to talk about like what we think is the economically um you know recoverable stuff um because it depends on what future prices will be and everything and if if prices are high enough, we'll end up finding a lot more supply than we think, and and vice versa. The supply won't Mm. be as great if prices are bad. Um, I think my guess is that some of the things I think on it are similar to Buffett in that, look, if we're going to have higher inflation as a possibility, if the average life of Wells is lower, so that the asset's life is a lot lower— than it used to be and if um whether because of esg stuff or just because of changes in cap allocation for other reasons companies are focused a lot more on buybacks dividends paying down debt and not as concerned with growing the amount of their reserves in terms of barrels each year um, if all that's true then i think you have the possibility for good returns um, and it doesn't require higher prices and i'm not saying higher prices what i'm saying is that if you take the long-term average prices that you had in the past for crude oil and natural gas and you apply them um, to a lot of these companies they're awfully close to a present value calculation using a 10% uh, discount rate and that isn't uh, you know that's effectively a real rate because they're not inflating future years Um, so you're basically saying you're getting like a 10% real return or something I, I mean the expectations for the stock market for real returns a lot of people would say close to zero. So it's the idea that it's so much cheaper. It it's not that um cheaper than other stocks, right? You're being offered at a much better price. If other st- if all bank stocks were offered at one times book, all insurers and things, I, I might not prefer oil to to them. Mm-hmm. Um you know, but they're not. You you're not getting offered most businesses at that sort of level that would get you a 10% return all the time.
0: Mhm. Got it. Have you ever read the book Big Rich no, it's a good one to read. I mean, I yeah. think you would like the prize more because the prize is yeah more technical and the big rich book was much more about like the personalities involved, the bass family, okay. the hunts and stuff like that. But uh, it's a longer book. I did just finish it recently. And honestly, I thought it was um, a very entertaining uh, read or listen if people want to learn more about the early days of uh, the oil industry and the personalities that were involved with it. So... Um, We could move on and quickly talk a little bit about inflation before jumping into the topic. I did think it was, uh, you know, it's just we haven't talked about it on the podcast in probably a month or so. So I wanted to hit on it here today. Uh, Just pulling headline inflation numbers, um, U.S. inflation rate is at 3.18% compared to 2.97% last month and 8.52% last year. Uh, Jeff likes to look at uh, sticky price, CPI. So I had pulled one from the Atlanta Fed's uh, index, and it says a weighted basket of items that change price relatively slowly, uh, increased 3.1% on an annualized basis in July, following a 2.9% increase in June. On a year-over-year basis, the series is up 5.6%. On a core basis, uh, which is excluding food and energy, the sticky price index increased 3.2% annualized in July, and its 12-month percent change was 5.5%. Um, the yield curve, we've talked about this on the podcast as it relates to banking, and I wanted to get your thoughts on that uh, because this is the longest inversion the United States has ever had in history. Um, I have the 10-2 up here, or what the Fed likes to use, the 10-year and uh, 10-year to three-month uh, yield curve. So just curious to hear your thoughts on how you're thinking about it um, as it relates to banking. If you're, you know, you are thinking about it for banks um, and what your thoughts are. Inflation has come down. Something that is weird this time around is I, I kind of like to just think about like the positioning in the market because there's there are a lot of uh, smart investors like Ackman and Oaktree Capital that have come out basically saying that they think rates are going to have to uh, be higher for longer. But if you look at like the overall positioning of investors in the market, uh, the vast majority of people are long bonds and are expecting yields to drop. Right. So basically, oh, we hit a recession, the Fed lowers interest rates, those bonds that they purchased today are going to go up, uh, which historically has been a trade that has worked out. But it's just so fascinating to see the dichotomy of these investors that are pretty smart and have made you know good calls over the time come out saying that they think rates are gonna have to be higher for longer even if we hit a recession um and then the uh, how crowded it is it seems like every investor is very long bonds um uh, in today's market so just kind of wanted to hit on the yield curve interest rates and just your thoughts of where we are with inflation
1: yeah well i think people are expecting a um what you want to call it, a soft landing, um, not a mm-hmm. recession at this point. And I think the Fed changed their call from not expecting a recession. Some uh, ex- probability things are as low as you would have in a normal year, you know, what the expectations are for it. Um, and so that's probably why we see a lot of optimism around um, some of the things that were, you know, stocks. Um, the The issue with inflation... And interest rates about whether they have to be higher for long and everything depends a lot on how much you think the Fed has contributed to rates coming down and uh, to inflation coming down and how much they can contribute in the future. Um, and I don't know the answer to that. Uh, it, they certainly don't seem to have done a lot, they've raised rates a lot. They think that they have real rates meaningfully positive, restrictive, as they would say. And that hasn't done much to reduce inflation and in the things we talked about, sticky uh inflation services, you know. Um Powell talks a lot about um services ex housing, which is very similar to sticky price inflation. So if you want to use sticky price inflation, if you want to use that, the numbers over time are gonna be pretty similar. And that's a really big part of the US economy. And um that is a part that may not be affected that much by what the Fed does. Um, so we'll see. But the, the you know the the risks could inflation reaccelerate and stuff. Yeah, it's possible it, because the Fed did have a big impact on housing and related industries and stuff. And at some point, activity in that kind of thing could pick up, right? If rates just level off and stay there. And if that happened and that really contributed a lot to bringing down inflation, then there would be a problem. Because this is happening with housing doing really badly and related industries to housing doing really badly, just in terms of levels of activity and everything. Um, so, you know, we'll see. But I, in general, getting inflation down to the levels they're talking about in the past has been achieved through increased unemployment usually a couple of points of increased unemployment and very often through, uh, you know, some sort of financial, um, event, Mm -hmm. financial conditions getting very tight. Um, so without those things, I don't know that you'll see a lot of, uh, decreases in the inflation that we're talking about. But as we said, like the sticky inflation and all that is at a level that some people might find acceptable. It's not the feds target. um, And, you know, a while ago, Howard Marks wrote a memo that did talk about the fact that that kind of inflation actually had not been low even in the 2010s. If you look at the entire 2000s, the Fed was over their target in terms of inflation in the stuff that was very domestic. And it was really goods, durable goods that were deflating that was causing all of that. And that could happen again. I mean, you know, China is not having inflation. And there could be other countries that, uh, that export to the United States and stuff that are not having inflation issues. And that could on balance, um, even things out to the level that they like in terms of inflation. But it would mean that you shouldn't expect that your, you know, your restaurant bill and stuff is not going to be inflating at a faster rate than the fed wants.
0: Hmm. Are you shocked by how resilient home builders have been? With interest rates and mortgage rates going from two to three percent to, I think I'm seeing, you know, closing it on seven and a half to eight percent. I mean, news came out uh, from Berkshire's mm-hmm. 13F that yeah. um, somebody, I'll take a guess who, I think it was probably Ted Weschler, purchased uh, DHI, NVR, and Lennar. So that is a, you know, DR Horton, NVR. That's the stock that everyone listening is familiar with. I mean, it's a home building uh, sector play, right? um uh, have you been shocked by how resilient these businesses have been i mean i just i really think you know the book capital cycle we've talked about on the podcast Mm -hmm. uh before it talks about how focusing on the supply side of things can be way easier than focusing on demand and how do you get mortgage rates going from you know let's call it three percent to more than doubling and you know home builders still just killing it right well it's because there's just complete lack of inventory go back to after 2008 and um we underbuilt in uh, the united states for a very long time where some people think there's like a six million home deficit throughout that period there's very low inventory and there are a lot of people that refinanced when interest rates were low or they purchased a new home so they're sitting on two to three percent mortgage rates rates go higher nobody wants to sell their home uh, with their lower mortgage to buy a new home with a higher mortgage. So you just have all these reasons that's really contributing to inventory and housing being incredibly low. And you know, you could take it a step further and say, okay, for a home builder to, let's say they wanted to build like crazy and, and bring supply on. Well, rates are much higher, right? So their cost of capital is way more expensive. You just have all these mm-hmm. different factors that you know point to just a continued supply shortage and how hard it could be, especially with rates being where they are to um you know sort of get out of it or build out of it. So have you been shocked to see just how resilient builders have been and and I would like to get your thought on uh someone at Berkshire Hathaway um uh, you know buying three positions. Uh 814 million dollars across NVR, DHI and LEN.
1: I what you said is you know why I'm not as shocked uh because we talked about with Basically, cars and houses that, you know, everyone will email in or whatever saying, you know, isn't there a bubble in this because the price has gone up so much and everything. But um, the actual number of units, you know, in these expansions didn't go up all that much. So it can be that the price is too high and has to come down you know cars are very unaffordable right now and houses are very unaffordable right now if you want to buy a new one so and you're seeing that in terms of like the the lack of a lot of transactions in the industries and everything right but that's different than when we say um a cycle we're talking about where i say like you know at some point you you have too many semiconductor you know semiconductor inventories get too high and the prices come down and it's a short cycle that way or when we talk about um, overbuilding of things, whether it was, you know, warehouse stuff in the U.S. with the internet boom with COVID, or whether it's you know empty uh, housing inventory in China or whatever, because it takes time to work through that. Whereas you don't really have that problem if you don't build too much in in housing and with autos. Um, but it makes it really unaffordable, right? And so it is a problem for them. And the first sign is what we talked about with the inventory thing, right? So. A lot of times, I feel like every time that this happens, people write really optimistic or, I mean, not optimistic, but sort of like bewildered things about, oh, why aren't prices coming down? But the amount of inventory starts to build up in an industry, the transactions drop off, you know, the, the liquidity in the market dries up and the prices don't come down because people aren't willing to sell at a lot lower price than they, you know, if you bought last year, you don't want to sell for a lower price this year, you um, and so there's just a lot less transaction stuff. And then that tends to lead things where, cause they're used to kind of the stock market news hits the market clears, but it does it with huge drops and everything. And these things have a lot of momentum. And so what you see is like, you'll see a bunch of for sale signs show up and stay out there and stuff long before you'll actually see reported that prices are down and everything. You know, you see it in that build and, and the other way too, where, you know, you just see that there, there's no inventory. Um, I don't know, like, as far as the stocks that were bought, you know, they're different amounts, right? One of them was very small, which I don't know if it's because it's close to the end of the quarter or just it was planned that way. And like you said, uh, it could be a fairly big bet, like, you know, 10% of the portfolio or something of one of the other two investors there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing is just why you would buy a few of them one issue for Berkshire is just that homebuilders aren't actually that huge in terms of market cap versus what Berkshire has to invest actually.
0: So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just have a, a thesis that I, I do believe is true. And you kind of see it time and time again, I mean, remember when you wrote about us slime, uh, which everyone yeah. listening can go to focus compounding and read it. Um, you had basically talked about with that. I mean, this, in a nutshell, it was supply, uh, the people producing, the amount of producers producing line was going down and nothing was exactly changing with the demand side. Uh, it's not like demand was going down. Um, so, you know, the industry was becoming a lot less competitive. Um, and you had thought that that was going to continue in the future. And it's crazy just like how well that, um, you know, that stock has performed and this is all stuff that you can track right like the amount of people that do produce slime and um the lack of competition in the industry and always continue to decline stuff like that which means there's more of a profit pool that would go to a producer like us slime. so i don't know it's just interesting i mean how do you just kind of thinking about how resilient the housing market has been even when you have all these other factors trying to bring it down so far right we're only i don't know a year and a half into this um, I don't know, you know, supply side things could, you know, be a a good place to focus uh, to make money, I think. Really, because prices have to go up, right? It seems like anyways, as long as the demand is still there. So, I don't know. But I thought it was interesting that someone at Berkshire uh, purchased three stocks as well. And, uh, you know, we'll see what happens there. Who do you think it was? Uh, I
1: don't know. I think that's a good guess, though. I yeah.
0: From what we know about him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So on this podcast, we've talked about special situations before. Um, I'm curious, Jeff, have you ever purchased a privatization? We've talked about, you recommended the book to me, Red Notice, Bill Browder. His story is phenomenal for anyone listening. If you want to read a phenomenal book um, about him investing in Russia and how he made a lot of money when Russia started to take a lot of their companies from being state-owned to being owned uh, or for the opportunity for the public to purchase it. We've also talked about airports as well on here. So I'm just kind of curious, Jeff, because I saw that Athens Airport is uh, going to sell 30% of the airport to the public through an IPO. Uh, Have you ever invested in a privatization? So going from state-owned to being open for the public to purchase?
1: I had not. I looked at. Um, I think only one or something like that. Probably, yeah.
0: Which country was it?
1: Um, it was German, uh, Germany or Netherlands, one of them. Mm-hmm.
0: Was it like a a a company like an airport? Was it a a, a an important? Business to the country, why were they bringing it public?
1: Um, I think just reforms with uh, similar to like you know they're always proposing in the United States you know to privatize the postal service or something like that you know
0: do you think it's still an interesting place to look for ideas? I mean when you read the Bill Browder book, Red Notice, he was talking about and even oligarchs another book that we've talked about in the podcast before, how they would look at deals that were coming public at a market cap of like Nothing. I mean, literally pennies mm-hmm. on the dollar. I mean, like hundreds of thousands of dollars for a business that was worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, I'm sure that's you know gotten competed away. But do you think that could be a good place to look for sort of more off the bean path type of ideas?
1: It, it could be. Um, sometimes the things that are interesting are, um, obviously, how big is the amount being sold, right? Because if the government's keeping a really big stake, then there could be reasons for that. Um, that who are not so positive in the future um, and what kind of business it is and um, what effects they'll have on like capital allocation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, a company that could commit a lot of capital may not be one that you want to still have the government have like um, a controlling stake in. Right. So if you, have a company where they say, uh, you know, they're privatizing a utility or something, but they say, oh, we're going to do a lot of these green projects and whatever. The government may want that no matter what, right? But if it's something where there's not really other stuff they can do, they're probably going to just want a dividend paid out all the time. You know, there've been some where that's true. I know because um, I've talked about, you know, the, the um, uh, when I did singular diligence, the person that I worked with that on, you know, lives in Vietnam and everything, and in Vietnam they had a lot of partial privatizations of things which pretty much mean that they're going to always pay a dividend um, they, they're not you know um, because they'll be like a bunch of different companies that have been partially privatized in the same industry and the government's not having them all combine and everything instead they're going to hold their stake and then have them pay out um, so it, it almost uh, could improve the capital allocation or at least could give you more of a sure thing of what you're going to get from it Um, Whereas on the opposite side, you know, um, let me put it this way, like BWX technologies in the US, if that was in another country and largely owned by the government, I wouldn't be interested in it. Right? Because something that's you know, involved in nuclear defense, all those sorts of things, there's a lot of ways uh, modular nuclear power and stuff. There's just a lot of projects that they could funnel things in for the government would want them to do to be a national champion and everything. Right? Um, That
0: might not be such a good capital allocation. Yeah, we talked about Sydney Airport on the podcast once, uh, which was mm-hmm. acquired uh, by a private equity firm, I believe. Uh, but, a, you know, great business, has a ton of leverage on it, um, but you do own a monopoly. So this would be interesting to, or basically a monopoly, uh, this would be interesting to uh, follow says the full 30% stake could be valued at between 800 million and a billion euros, which translates to 880 million to 1.1 billion. But you're right though. I mean, if they have full control over their capital allocation, that could be a great situation. But I guess if 70% is still going to be state owned, that's something that you'd be worried about.
1: Yeah. Um, So if it's something that's, you know, like, like, with this with an airport or something uh, You're probably going to get pretty good capital allocation Because there's not a lot of different things That they can move into that way and everything mm-hmm. um, You know there's also Like whether it'll really perform as well As things that are um, That that are you know Privately owned and everything mm-hmm. um, but, but sometimes it can I mean it, it depends on the situation I just don't know enough about, about Greece and everything to know that um, You know I, I guess they're um some of the infrastructure stuff that the government owned was supposedly not very efficiently run um but so maybe there'd be a lot of room for improvement with air just as there was with like rail and stuff
0: what are some just off the cuff type of things you want to find out right probably try to understand where their economy like how their economy works where a lot of their um gdp for example comes from right tourism stuff like that or the politics i mean would you just kind of try to learn as much as possible about greece and the people that would be running the company
1: yeah i mean just look at the incentives and stuff i think i mean i think you can guess and the other stuff isn't very hard to know we know what currency they use and and all and you know like you said with tourism and everything so that kind of stuff isn't very hard to figure out And their location we know what, what they would be mm-hmm. um so that's all pretty i mean you're not gonna find anything really surprising with that stuff um but the incentives sure mm-hmm. yeah
0: one of the best uh, resources to find out about a country is the uh, actually from the CIA, the World Factbook. Mm-hmm. So you could find Greece, you could find any little obscure country you come across and learn a ton about uh, the country. So people will have to spend some time on there if you want to um, learn about this situation with Greece, but it's one that we'll have to uh, follow on the podcast. You see real GDP per capita twenty nine thousand five hundred inflation mm-hmm. credit ratings blah 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 basically everything that you would want to know to learn about greece at least as a primer so we'll have to follow that and did you invest in the one in germany or no you just looked closely no. or just kind of
1: no there's a lot of things i mean that we although we i really like the book um can be a stock market genius we have talked about how a lot of those things including privatization stuff which you know when it was privatization by whatever the uk and stuff and they were a leader in that was really good some of the later things i don't know about people have learned a lot about them and and i just feel like a lot of spinoffs and things haven't been as great um spinoffs and and um things emerging from bankruptcy and, and a lot of the ones that we've talked about that way people have gotten very used to them and investing in them and i do feel that it's more efficient that way than it used to be doesn't mean it always will be yeah
0: yeah because i was going to say can you think of a strategy a pocket of the market that was very good became very Mm -hmm. efficient but then came back in style to being very good again i mean because these things do happen right i mean it may take 10 15 20 years but can you think of anything in particular
1: i mean i i don't know that they'll be as good in terms of the uh I don't know that it'll be ever as inefficient as it was back when uh, Greenblatt was doing that, right? Um, usually once the market's been discovered and people are used to trading and stuff, then I think that goes away. Um, however, I also think there's quality issues with the spinoffs. Um, it's the same as like LBOs. People ask about LBOs and stuff and the performance of those things and everything. And, and the deals that they did in the beginning were so much better than the deals they ended up doing much later. It doesn't mean the deals they do you know, in the 2020s are going to be bad, but they aren't the same as the ones that they were doing in the end of the 70s and the 80s the beginning of the 80s and stuff. Um, so I just think U S businesses got a lot better over time, at least. And that's what we focus on with um, breaking up, spinning off end of these conglomerates and stuff. Um, maybe if, you know, suddenly Japanese companies were doing spin spinoffs and stuff, um, there would be attractive things that way. Right. But um, I just think, you know, there there was the Garrett Motion bankruptcy, right, and um, some other things that were specifically, I felt, spinoffs that were um, gaming the system, right, in terms of knowing that there's probably... Um, interest from people to buy a spinoff, we can load it up with debt. We can make different arrangements with putting on sort of these liabilities or trying to offload liabilities you can't really offload from your company by having sort of payments from them to you. I mean, so I looked at, I guess, Carrier. Um, did I look at Otis, Residio, Garrett Motion? Um, you know, all- you know, and, and a lot of those I, di- I didn't – some I liked the everything except the price, but some of the others I didn't like other aspects of it. And a lot of it was in terms of how financially engineered it was, right? Like they make sure with all of them they are barely, you know, slightly junk or the bottom rung of investment grade sort of and – or we're going to get to where we're going to be the bottom rung of investment grade after we delever a bit. Um, they load them up with as much debt as they can that way. And, you know, um, I don't know that they've been as interesting to me. Why but do they
0: do that? Just to offload it from the parent company?
1: To improve the perform? I mean, I think those are to improve the performance of the parent company and stuff. Mm-hmm. I wrote of Vitesse that that was a good spinoff in terms of it was two completely different kinds of companies, totally different shareholder bases, a weird situation that way. That's what you want is that kind of split off. I think,
0: but mm-hmm. you know. So coming from Jeffries to right, an energy investment company. bank,
1: yeah. So the investment bank becomes more of a peer play investment bank. The energy company becomes more of a peer play energy company that way, um, and then also the energy companies. Uh, you know, I mean, as I wrote up in that article, there's not actually. It's I, I talked a little bit about um, non-operating working interests because I don't know. Or at least I haven't don't have any memory of um, analyzing publicly traded companies, which consisted almost solely of those interests. Um, you know, usually you had things that were operators and stuff. it's It's not so common. So I don't know that that makes a huge difference or anything about it, but uh, that is part of it that it probably wouldn't exist in that form, I feel like, unless it had been part of Jeffries and they've been doing that and then they spun it out. I think that if it'd been a public company all this time, it would be diversified into doing other stuff. Um, and not so purely that one thing, so and and also the fact that it was done with basically you know pretty close to debt free, like within mm-hmm. it thinking that if prices stayed about where they were, it would effectively be close to net no net debt, you know, pretty fast, which is the opposite of how most spinoffs
0: are done, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then I mean, how do you get comfortable with? capital allocation in this situation because you don't have years to go off of to judge it right that's um, big risk. listening to management and if you do listen to management all I do talk about is their dividend I had sent you a a video of uh they were on a like an analyst call or whatever um a research event something like that and the first thing he had said was that the first thing he thinks about in the morning is how can he keep the dividend going and blah 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 blah. they care a lot about their dividend they communicate that um every time they talk to the public which i imagine is deliberately done so is it just kind of more so trusting and then verifying as time goes on is it you know sanity checking and be like yeah they can keep this dividend going forward as long as x happens how did you get comfortable with uh, the capital allocation of vts I mean, I'm not comfortable. I mean, it may change,
1: right? So there's just no way to know that. The The main thing is it may change as they have experience as a public company, sure, but also just as there's changes in prices and all of that. And so that tends to be what happens. It's very hard to predict how people will behave in a different environment than the one that they're in now. Um, that's obviously what they're trying to sell the market on and what they're doing and, and how to think about their company is that the main focus is to be a dividend-paying company, not that they're growing uh, in terms of reserves or anything. And then, you know, there are other objectives after that, but, um, and also that they were trying to target, you know, not having a lot of, of debt that way. Um, there are cheaper companies, especially on a leverage basis, but some of them have more, um, have done, you know, in their history have done some pretty big transactions. And so that's a little more worrying, right? They have a lot more transformative transactions in their past. Have a lot of debt on, and then they plan to pay the debt down. You know that that also is is part of it, um, which I think I've talked about. But uh, I, don't, I don't. I'm not that interested in buying an energy company that's delevering, mm-hmm. right? Because you know you have on it whatever the yield would be, which is some of these cases, even when they're pretty junky companies, it's the kind of yield that you'd now have if you want to take out a 30 year mortgage. And um, they're paying that down instead of buying back their own stock, right? When their stock's very cheap or something. So, uh, I you know I, we've just talked about that before. I think that's something that people get um, saying that you know I don't like companies with debt or something. I, I don't like t- as much as people do to invest in a company that has a lot of debt because one of the risks is that they will delever while you own it lowering your returns. I know a lot of people like that because it shows that they're optimizing their returns and all of that and that they're going to keep doing it. But buying a company that doesn't have debt but in theory has some capacity to put debt on it isn't necessarily a bad thing. Uh, You actually could get better results from that right? Mm. because it could buy something else by borrowing to to fund that purchase or something and you sort of get the benefit of that and the market kind of reacts like that's a normal level of debt for a company to carry and doesn't uh, you know hit it with a big penalty that way um sometimes companies aren't rewarded a lot for having like no debt on their balance sheet
0: mm-hmm. yeah you have said before that um that you want a company to lever up when you own it in most situations you'd rather that than the alternative like you just said
1: mm-hmm. yeah usually i mean if you get a great price and everything and they're going to delever and they have to or something To make that happen, but I can't, I mean, there's so many write-ups where it says, you know, that is one of the catalysts and stuff is that they're going to delever and everything, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and and if the situation was different in terms of what interest rates were and what returns are in the economy, then I feel differently about that. But generally paying off the debt, especially when you consider, you know, um, what almost anything else the returns would be in it, you're guaranteeing sort of a lower return than you would doing something else right Mm -hmm. so those companies that are even the ones that say our debt's expensive because seven percent or whatever um you know say those are bonds for instance uh you know you're not they're not loans that you're in danger of having problems with um you know you have it funded for a while this way it's a long-term source of funding until you have the refinancing for it and um why you know why am i buying your stock and everything if you don't think that you could get 7% yourself from buying back your stock better than that right so that that's you know something um that's important to me i think i talked about howden joinery for instance and um one thing that was positive in recent years is they seem to be adopting sort of a strategy where they say, well, here's how much we want to have a lot of cash on hand because we lease things and stuff, but here's sort of a limit to how much cash we'll have on hand. And after that, we kind of think that's surplus, and we're probably going to focus on like buying back the stock. Um, It doesn't mean they don't have any dividend or anything like that, but that like we won't infinitely build up cash, but here's sort of a level that we think this is where it's excesses after this sort of amount. Same thing with the company that says, well, we'll have two times debt to EBITDA or something. And when we get under that, we'll buy back our stock probably, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Because then you don't just have a piling up on limited amounts, which can be a problem. Um, But you also know that they're not going to get into a lot of danger by borrowing a lot of money to do something outside of what the core business is that you're interested in buying into.
0: Um, Is Howden Joinery still in the too hard pile for you right now you like the business you like their capital allocation i believe you like the people running it uh for you it's just been purely a pricing and if it's cheap today or if it's actually expensive today and perhaps the housing market falls out um and, and you know it ends up looking expensive so is it purely just price for you still
1: yeah i don't think that it'll turn out to look expensive but it might turn out to look kind of very normally priced. It's like we're talking about with the home builders, right? So the issue is if you look at what the price is today versus what they were earning right before COVID, it's kind of a little expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at what it is versus what they've been earning since COVID, it's a pretty good price, you know, for a high quality going business. Uh, and then the other issue was what we just talked about was the capital allocation, right? Before, early on in their history, they used to be able to open up enough depots all the time that it kind of absorbed a lot of the earnings that they were having. But you realize that there there's going to be so little that they can actually put back into business relative to what their earnings are that it starts to matter a lot. Are they going to be buying back stock? Are they going to let it pile up on the balance sheet? That sort of thing. And I think only in the last couple of years, like two years or so, that you've seen some sense of maybe what the capital allocation will be for the future as a
0: mature company that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, the box office, we could hit on this really quick uh, since we haven't hit on that in uh, a month or so. We are on target to do domestic box office nine point seven billion. To put that in perspective, twenty nineteen had eleven point three billion in uh, box office receipts. Uh, where we currently sit here today, in the middle of August, uh, is six point two billion. Uh, so, just curious to hear your thoughts on theatrical market. Obviously, we talk a lot about Cinemark, Marcus, AMC, mm-hmm. just theaters in general, the movie industry in general. Did you see Barbie? Did you see Oppenheimer? what were your thoughts on that and uh if uh, you were pleasantly surprised by the turnout or pleasantly surprised by this phenomenon that is known as Barbie how well that turnout has been and uh are you optimistic for theaters in the future
1: yeah so the um the estimates that you just gave for like what the box office will be it's important to keep in mind that before this whole barbenheimer thing right the estimates would have been about 9 billion i think um, the same sort of things are predicting a lot more just from that, uh, and a lot of that is just from the increased performance of those two movies versus what was expected. Um, now estimates have been coming down a little bit since earlier because in the year because a few movies underperformed right before those, right? Mm-hmm. So a few like um mostly superhero type movies, but also Indiana Jones: The Dial of Destiny didn't do that great, and uh, you know, um, but like installments and in franchises that had um that were much later in the franchise, right? So, um, the performance was really good. Uh, and some of that is a fluke, right? Just like it became a meme thing and what, and you know, wouldn't have that level, I think, um, except for that. And so we can't kind of gauge the two movies independently of what they would do. I think both of them did more because of that. And that's a really weird thing that happened. And, you know, um the the biggest movies that we've seen lately in the last year or so are probably doing about what they would do before COVID. So Maverick, Super Mario Brothers, Barbie, Oppenheimer too, and it's not in that same category in terms of how big its um, uh, take will be, but it's as you know, no Christopher Nolan movie would do that much, um it would do more than that before COVID. Uh, I think the numbers has the market adjustment now at like 80, 81% or something for the overall market. So they're estimating that you take a movie using pre-COVID numbers to predict in your model, you lower it by 20% because you figure that the market is at 80% of what it used to be. And that's not a bad guess, but it's probably a little too aggressive for big movies, but it might be accurate for some of the smaller movies, or it's an issue of like, as we've talked about before, um, there's not the right product mix. So there's too many movies coming out in the summer uh, in a short period. Um, there's not enough room for them all to get IMAX screens, right? So, like, you know, I'm sure that uh, Mission Impossible would have made more money if it hadn't come out so close to Oppenheimer. There's just not, you know, there's there's a lot more demand for IMAX screens than there are IMAX screens. And... um That has a big effect on like, you know, in terms of earnings for, uh, in terms of um, profits and stuff beyond attendance because those are premium priced. So I think some of the 20% weaker number compared to what the market used to be is in part, there are fewer movies, Mm -hmm. there are fewer big movies and stuff, and they're not um, spread out correctly throughout the year. And that's still a thing that was caused by covid um, it messed up with production things and stuff. Um, but I think some of it is also probably that your average movie is probably not going to be as attended by quite as many people as it was before COVID. But your mm-hmm. biggest movies, we're not seeing any indication that they would have done bit better before COVID. Mm-hmm. So I think a super hit movie still reaches the same number of people as it would have before, like a cultural phenomenon kind of movie.
0: Mm-hmm. So what do you do if you're um, you know, the studio that made Barbie? I mean, do you follow up with the Barbie 2 Or is that more so of like Mm a one-hit wonder?
1: Uh, They, I'm sure they will follow up with the Barbie too. Uh, They will. uh, It was Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers, right? Yeah, yeah. that may. You know, I don't want to say that's why they did it, but Christopher Nolan used to release all his movies through Warner Brothers. It's possible that Barbie and Oppenheimer were released on the same day because Warner Brothers wanted to hurt Oppenheimer. They helped; it helped both of them, and that may not be the reason why they did it, but it is a possibility. Um, so, because they had a falling out with the last movie that he did, so um, there, I'm sure there'll be a Barbie too, because I'm sure that Mattel will want it, and I'm sure that Warner Brothers will want it. Uh, I don't; I have no idea if you'll have the same director and stuff. Um, it's very possible you won't. Um, so, you know, and or the same star or something. They obviously make a lot of money from this because they got. I'm sure, um, points, you know, in terms of box office, like, so they got some percentage of the box office, they won't need to do it. And, uh, it's not the kind of thing where you're probably very excited to do a, you know, Barbie too.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What'd you think of the movie?
1: Uh, I thought, you know, I thought it was very interesting. I could see why it's a big, um, phenomenon. Mm. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's go in the United States. It'll be bigger than super Mario so and worldwide it'll be close it's also interesting it's doing really good numbers during the week if you look yeah. it's weekend numbers actually worse than um super mario but it's doing really good numbers during the week and obviously the thing that really helps is that oppenheimer skews very male and barbie skews very female um so it's a really good match in terms of the programming of how they released it that way but again like and, and so we had that before too with like um uh, Sound of Freedom and all that where it was doing good amounts of money without probably cannibalizing a lot of the other movies um, but then you have something like Mission Impossible which I'm sure did not do as well because of the release date and obviously you don't know at the time that Barbie Not is going to be as big as it is but it's still tough that's not when you want to release something like that so mm-hmm. and we've seen that before um, where the movies would have I mean Super Mario Maverick and Super Mario did really well in part because they um, could play for a really long time without competition and when they were released. So it was mm-hmm. a good time to release them and do that. And there's some other movies where it's not going to work out as well if they're released in this shorter period. The The summer sort of thing is shortened up. So I think that'll stop. But for now, it is a bit of an issue. Um that there's not enough product spread out throughout the year. So I wouldn't be surprised if we have a really weak um, final quarter or so of the year. There's not a lot of movies that you'd expect to be big hits and also um, movies without any novelty to them. You know, movies that are part of franchises that have been around a while are performing badly. Mm -hmm. So I think people would lower their expectations for a Warner brothers movie, uh, a DC movie. Sorry. Or a um, Marvel movie or something like that now versus what it was before. And that'll adjust. People will make less superhero movies now that they've seen this this year. They'll, they won't greenlight quite as many stuff. And they'll greenlight more of these kinds of movies that are sort of original kind of things. I mean, Barbie and Super Mario Brothers. No one remembers the Super Mario Brothers from 30 years ago. Um, and uh, Barbie is the first time doing this in a theater. Um so they're original movie franchises, but they're obviously super well known. And so they'll probably, all studios will probably look for something. What is something that everyone's heard of, but we haven't
0: made movies of yet and try to do those instead of superhero movies, right? Mm-hmm. So from the numbers, it said the production budget for Barbie was a hundred million. How much do you think mm-hmm. they spent on marketing? I mean, because we had talked about it. I couldn't believe I was seeing it everywhere. I mean, absolutely everywhere. Mm -hmm. Amazon, uh, on TV shows, they were incorporating Barbie into the TV show. I mean, it was just, I, I was like, I can't believe. This is, at least in recent memory, I can't think of another movie where they were pushing it so much, uh, from a marketing perspective.
1: Yeah. So I'm sure they spend a really large amount on marketing. I'm I'm not sure how much, um, I think the production budget's also deceptive because like with Maverick, my guess is that that has a huge, um, component of, uh, points being given to people in box office. And so if it protects your downside that you don't, you only actually put a hundred million into it, but on the upside, there's tens of millions of dollars that they'll have to pay out in bonuses to people. I'm sure. Um, that's usually how they get the production budget down that low is that you guarantee a lot to people, um, in terms of if it's a hit. Right. And, um, of course very profitable movie though. Um, even if you assume that the marketing was the same as the production budget, right. Um, even assuming that that would still mean that what worldwide gross are we up to right now?
0: 1.2 billion.
1: So estimate that that probably means the studio six hundred million roughly. You know, different countries is different, but it's about fifty percent. And then even if your marketing was a hundred million because you paid as much as the production, that's still four hundred million. You could have a lot to pay out to people. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if it was. I don't know. It's probably not a hundred million, but it could be really, really big um, to some of the talent. So. If you put that aside, even if you put that in, it's still hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, and then you'll make a lot more from the TV rights and the, you know, uh, video on demand and all that stuff later too. So obviously they made way over, they will have made way, way over $300 million on something that they risked $100 million on. And probably mm-hmm. a lot more than that over time. Mm-hmm. And they could do a sequel that would be profitable, even if it's nowhere near as big as the first one.
0: Cool. Well, a listener had um, sent in a question that I thought would be great and we could talk about this idea of like profit persistency and how uh, you think about that when looking at companies. Somebody had said, he said, you and Jeff often discuss media companies of various sorts, especially movie theaters. However, I'm very curious what your thoughts are on local TV stations. You both have mentioned the desirability of owning a strong business in a declining market segment, and that seems to be what companies like NextStar, Gray, and Sinclair are. Yet, most people think of TV broadcast businesses as old, shrinking, and increasingly irrelevant. So, kind of talking about like declining competition. We were talking about that with like mm-hmm. declining competition in U.S. Lime. So he continues. So, what are they? A medium in decline, but strong businesses nonetheless or quickly on their way to complete uselessness? Should one consider them a completely different animal than social media companies, and more akin to movie theaters, question mark, or are they in their own unique category? If I may, I see things a bit differently than most given my background. Working in the public policy and political world, I see local TV, like billboards, as an absolutely essential medium. Nearly every time a major political campaign comes out with a new TV commercial, It's remarked upon as if everyone still understands their importance relative to social media ads. And that understanding seems to be translating into respectable revenue, if not the flashy sums of tech companies. According to the St. Louis Fed, TV broadcast revenue has more than doubled since 2002, with the only annual declines during the 2008-2009 recession. Meanwhile, a business like Nexstar seems not incompetently run, some points. It trades at a low 7.5 times pe its return equity is 34 percent while it carries a lot of debt due to MA activity its revenue has nearly doubled since 2018. while its gross margin can be a wild ride its net income has nearly tripled since 2018. it issued shares in its acquisition of media general in 2017 doesn't seem great but since it has reduced share count and debt so We've talked about broadcasting stations and businesses on this pod before. So I wanted to hit on that. And then we can look at NextStar to get your thoughts on that. So it sounds like he likes it. Uh, It's a business in a declining industry, um, less competition. He thinks it's trading cheap and the return on equity numbers are good. Albeit has a lot of debt, but yeah.
1: Mm -hmm. So I think over the long term, NextStar has done really well as a stock. It's probably in the, you know, when we did that, where we talked about the 10 baggers or whatever, you know, the semiconductor companies and all that. It's probably would have been in that category if it was a decade or more. Um, Some of that is that it's used a lot of debt to do that. Um, So these acquisitions um, and obviously Buffett liked the industry in the past. Um, They've held up really well compared to what people would expect. Right. Mm -hmm. So you would expect that local TV uh, stations, would do really badly, and yet, as businesses, they've held up so much better than people might expect, so certainly than I expected um whereas something like newspapers did not, you know, except for the the big ones that um sort of pivoted to being kind of national um online newspapers um, and uh obviously the stuff about the local advertising is true, right that it's really important for that kind of thing. But it's the risk of societal change that's hard to predict. Um, and so that's why, for me, it's difficult to predict. you got a lot of operating leverage, you have some financial leverage, and then you're thinking about when is it going to be that it really drops off. Um, and it, it's very, very hard to predict. A lot of times people predict... Much more change than actually turns out to happen. Um, There was a lot of that going back in the 1990s with how the Internet was going to change things. It changed a lot of things, but people predicted a lot of things it would change that it hasn't still to this date. Right. And um, I have not had any cable since 2011, I think. So, and I think I got an e-reader in 2007, end of 2007 or something like that. So I'm pointing those out because in the first few years after I, you know, started using an e-reader instead of reading print books, started um, doing streaming things or whatever, stuff like that, instead of, you know, cord cutting, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It was a long time until a lot of that picked up steam with other people adopting it. Right. And that's what can happen is you don't, you know, um, I don't have a good feel for that. Uh, so that, you know, that that's my main concern is that I just don't think that I'm very um, knowledgeable about that. I'm not very tuned into what people are going to be doing um, in terms of their viewing habits and stuff. It's all, but it's the same reason why, you know, I wouldn't be investing in social media things and stuff like that because I'm not, I, I would be the last person to know on that stuff. Um, but it's taken a long time for, you know, viewership numbers and stuff to decline, obviously. Um, it, it's better than being pay TV. Let's put it that way. It's a lot better to be free um, where you get retransmission things and stuff. But but basically free to air and um, supported by advertising than it has been to be like a subscriber thing in a bundle. That's the thing that's really been really killed, is like to be, you'd rather be the TV stations that NextStar owns and stuff than like ESPN, which was making a lot of money as part of bundles that were being sold to everybody, whether they wanted it or not, um, as opposed to unbundling and all the danger that comes from that. So, um, I, I just think it's way outside my circle of competence though. I think there is a, it costs about the same regardless of what your audience is going to be, right? I mean, not exactly, but to operate many of these things. So there's a ton of... um, Certainly it does regardless of what the ad rates are. So um, there's a ton of operating leverage. You have this fixed cost, and if you can get above that, then you make a lot of money. Um, I just think that it's very hard. I can see from an advertising it's it's hard from both a viewing and advertising perspective to understand why people would be using it and why they might stop using it and that's really what what i mean when i say like i can't predict these things right like um i've said before with facebook the thing that was t- that was uh, completely unpredictable to me that i didn't see at all was how effective the advertising would be on facebook see it, it wasn't that what the audience would be it wasn't how much time people would spend on it. It would be how much people would pay, businesses would pay for that advertising, right? And because of how effective it would turn out to be. And there's a lot of things like that that I just don't know about um, here and I worry about. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just very difficult to um, even get close to understanding what it would be. But... You know, value investors will buy things like this. It's fine. You can bet on this as part of a group and just assume that there will be less societal change than you might think. Um, But you do that, sometimes you own newspaper, sometimes you own Kodak or something. It it will sometimes happen that you own something that it turns out um, just is not significant to society going forward. Um, And that's what could happen here,
0: Mm -hmm. obviously. Mm -hmm. It's not like railroads where, for example, railroads were and and are going to be probably for the next 100 years at least uh very significant and important to society right i always like to say i mean newspapers i don't know 50 years ago were one of the best businesses you can own and railroads were Mm. one of the worst but that's completely flipped where it's like well now it's you know good luck owning a newspaper company uh and railroad businesses are some of the best businesses in the world to own um so, yeah. But it's, it's, it's the difference of competition and the durability aspect, right? You're saying that you don't know if there's going to be so much societal change where something like Nextar, um is going to be needed 5, 10, 15 years in the future. But railroads, on the other hand, uh, will be.
1: Yeah, and, and I don't know even things about like the distribution and stuff, right? So there will be probably a lot of demand for uh, programming online that is free for people. Whether that's entertainment programming, that's just you know movies and things that they've inserted ads into, or what. But probably that will grow a lot versus like subscription. You could definitely see that happening, um, and that can include local programming. And there's lots of other ways to monetize and everything, but it's just so much outside of you know being able to predict what will happen and how it will happen um, that it, it it's not something that I would feel comfortable predicting at all.
0: Well, this idea of profit persistency, how to analyze it, how you think about it. Uh, you've written about before. We've uh, don't believe we've talked about it on the podcast actually, uh, but there was a study that was done by Credit Suisse on the consistency of profitability across industries, and the top three most um, consistent or persistent from a profit perspective was household and personal products, food and beverage, and hotels and restaurants, and the bottom three of the least. Persistent industries: insurance, semiconductors, and real estate. Um, something that is interesting about that is that podcast we did recently, when we talked about semiconductors, have been some of the better performing um, <laughs> stocks. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's the most uh, persistent as it relates to the business from a profit perspective. And how you know you think about Buffett being like a high certainty investor. Uh, You Mm -hmm. could look at the 2009 shareholder letter because that was the last year where he was making all of the investment decisions. You know, of course, talking with Munger, but, you know, it was all Buffett. He didn't have Ted or Todd uh, working for Berkshire. And uh, uh, 60% of his top five stocks in 2009 uh, were in the top 8% of industries by persistence of profitability from that Credit Suisse report. American Express, Coca-Cola, Kraft Foods, Procter & Gamble, and Wells Fargo, and Company. Um, uh, now, what's interesting is insurance was on the bottom three. Mm-hmm. But if you look at this as his stock portfolio, where he doesn't take control positions, he doesn't control capital allocation, he's not the chief risk officer. Um, he doesn't own a lot of, I mean, he doesn't own insurance stocks in a big way. Anything in insurance, mm-hmm. I mean, he's the one that's controlling everything, Right. So, some of the takeaways, um, almost without exception, Buffett's 2009 stock investments were in companies that were either in non-cyclical industries or in financial services. So, non-cyclical meaning, uh, you know, the profit persistency is there. The exceptions are Posco and ConocoPhillips, uh, and also BYD. But you know, that was probably Munger in a big way influenced that, um, and that his portfolio, his investment portfolio, where he doesn't control management and uh capital allocation it skews heavily towards the very least cyclical industries around so i'm kind of curious uh to hear your thoughts on this idea of profit persistency how you think about it how you judge it you know is it purely a durability thing or is it an industry competitive thing this idea of like price takers versus price makers and how that affects an industry as well really just sort of start from a and go to z of how you think about uh, profit persistency and how you think is important uh, as it relates to a portfolio. Because our portfolio, I would say, would probably skew very similar to Buffett's as well.
1: Yeah, it skews very similar in terms of industry choices. Um, And in fact, even when it is things that are cyclical or something, it's the same sort of things that he would buy that are cyclical or, you know, same idea. So um, I think one generally... Industries that are going to have high persistency and profitability are also just going to have higher returns over their full cycle. You're much more likely to have bad returns in an industry if you're a buy and hold forever investor if it, it has a cycle to it. Because the only reason why there should be a really a cycle in something is miscalculations, right? And I'm not blaming anyone. It's that they can't foresee it and stuff, but you miscalculate demand for homes, because you can't foresee what the future is going to be next year or something. Say you're building a lot of homes as a home builder, you don't realize that rates are going to go up to 6% or something. And so it turns out that your inventory didn't move as fast and, you know, and vice versa. Right. So this happens in a bunch of industries. And um, it means that one, you sometimes have really good profits. Cause I, I've talked to people who I, I think talking about moats and stuff like, Their image of a bad business, I guess, is more like a consistently poor earner that's like um, consistently just earning a low return on equity, right? And there are some of these, you know, uh, we've talked about Japanese stocks or something. There are some small Japanese stocks that are kind of like that. They're not that... um, Engineered financially to be optimized that way Maybe they're not optimized in terms of incentives in the way that they run things to squeeze out all the profits They keep doing things the same way keep growing But they're actually a pretty decent predictable business and they have nice market share or a nice product or whatever And so they they make money every year, right? but a, a bad business actually doesn't do that um, Like a true commodity business doesn't have lousy earnings all the time um, oh, you know what's a good example of this? There's just two offers made for U.S. Steel. So yeah. the ticker's X on that. Can you look at that one? Because yeah. that's a really good one to illustrate for people. So people would say, oh, return equity at U.S. Steel is low or something. Actually not true. It, it's almost never low. It's negative or it's like 20%. Because when it's in short supply, the commodity that they're producing, they have a few years in a row where they make good earnings. Mm-hmm. And then all the other times, it's a terrible business. Um But you'll hit these periods of, I don't remember if it was 2003 to 2006 or something in that neighborhood, and just now since COVID, um, where you'll earn these really good returns. And it could even show up on like a, um, you know, magic formula type thing or something, right? So it'll look like it has pretty good returns, and it'll have a low enterprise value to to EBIT or something at the time. Um, And that's always my problem with kind of the magic formula, is, to me, the magic formula is the Buffett approach, except it doesn't worry about this consistent, this persistency, profit persistency we're talking about. Um, on the other hand, you have the statistical aspect of it, which is how it's studied with these things, versus the common sense Buffett type approach, which is, you know, the better one, really. So, I, although I think this is important to look at in terms of those industries and everything ultimately what matters is if you understand and can predict the future based on common sense and human behavior. And so insurance may say it's low persistency, but it might be high for progressive and Geico, right? Um, And there may be uh, food things that are not as predictable as other ones. Uh, You know, um, and it depends on your ability to understand how predictable the industry is and um how much pricing power the company has is a very big one Uh, i think that that does tend and i think it's even been shown statistically but certainly in my experience um although in theory all that would matter for your returns is your operating profitability right um in terms of operating margins or something, and then multiply that through with your your turns. So having very high turns, uh, you know, having low inventory relative to sales or, you know, selling fast um, or just low amounts of capital versus what you're producing in sales um, should be just as good a way of making money. Uh, I think it tends to be less persistent. Um, and this gets into the issue of... um what's captured by the financial statements versus maybe what you can know but isn't yet in the statements, right? So the thing is, sometimes you have pricing power and it may not be shown so much in the financial statements at present, but then if there's a downturn in the business or if there's inflation or whatever, and then you see that the pricing power is taken advantage of, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and to some extent, you can know that by looking at the business and thinking about it. Um, whether they have that kind of pricing power and everything. And not all of it is always reflected in the financial statements all the time. And that's one downside to when we do these studies and things and look at this. Remember that C's had that pricing power before Buffett bought it, but it then showed as if it's, it's financial results were getting better just because he was raising prices, mm-hmm. but the old management could have been raising prices too. Um, and so some of that is, you know, just falls into that category. Uh, Disney, after Eisner took over, they raised prices on the parks a lot. And that's because of what they achieved with the parks under the previous management. Um, it's just that it's not shown in terms of high returns and stuff, but you build that up like as a moat or as whatever. Um, and then you can take advantage of it later. So it, it's like from the customer's perspective that you have that power, that pricing power. Um, and I think Buffett looks at it. I think that's what he looked at with Apple. You know, that's one where I think people misunderstand some of the stuff he said with that, where like he sold out of Taiwan Semiconductor, Mm -hmm. but people say, well, but Apple, how will there even be Apple products and stuff if there's a, you know, conflict that involves Taiwan or anything? But I think he hasn't said it quite this way, but what he means is Apple's product doesn't really have to be made in a specific place at a specific cost because ultimately people will pay... Uh, an amount that the company will get a lot of money over the full system of what it sells, right? So, like, if it has to be twice the price, it will be twice the price. Like, if it costs Apple twice as much to make it, they can charge twice as much for it. Um, It's not the sort of thing where um, people are going to switch away for that, right? Whereas there's lots of other businesses where they will. Um, And that's also why I've been, you know, I've said, like, you know, as much as I like Costco and that system and everything that they have, I do think that that's less of a moat to build something purely around a cost advantage, whether it's Costco, whether it was Southwest Airlines and stuff, which were great stocks in their periods of best performance and everything, but based purely on an operating cost advantage over things because of that, I think is harder to persistently have an advantage in as compared to being able to have a premium
0: price on your product. Mm -hmm. So to get that premium price, does that mean you just have to have that premium product that people love and that there's really no serious substitution for you're in your own sort of class?
1: Well, so the number one thing is to be operating in an industry with competitors and stuff who understand that by cutting their price, they can't take your customers. If you don't have that, you're going to be in a tough business. So I think, you know, ultimately like streaming, for instance, it's a lousy business now. But it may turn out to be a better business than it appears in a way that, like, um, it will never have the cyclicality of semiconductors or something, right? Because at some point, companies will realize, I can't cut my price below your price and take your customers, right? In the early days when they're trying to grow very fast, they all had very low prices versus what would make sense economically for them and everything. But there's a realization that you can't do that. You know, uh, I say that about with the banking things, even with all the deposit issues and everything, I think people overestimate how likely it is that customers really switch deposits from one bank to another. They're willing to accept quite a bit lower interest than the very highest interest rates that they could find um, to to stick with a bank. It doesn't mean that they will take 0% interest when someone else is offering three, but it means that uh, very slight differences on that aren't going to cause them to switch back and forth all the time. So that's the most important one. Um... The other thing too is availability. So you do want a product that's, I mean, perfectly available. That's where distribution is really, really important. You lose sales and you lose customers if you lack availability, um, of your product. That's the number one reason, you know, why, why people are going to switch, um, and so whether you're a car company or whatever, if you get in a situation where you actually can't produce to meet all the demand that there is, or, you know, with smartphones or whatever, if there were years where that was an issue or consoles, right, um, it, you can lose customers that way. And then that also causes cyclicality that's bad too. So ability to have premium pricing is mainly that you don't think that you'll lose customers. Um, that's – when I talk about brands and stuff, a lot of times people think like um, – the brand positioning as like being a premium brand Mm -hmm. is the important thing, but that often isn't necessarily going to like be an advantage. Um, It's just a question of whether you're perceived to be the best that way. Um, It's more a question of whether you have sometimes brand awareness combined with availability, but certainly like um, an ability to retain your customers in the face of slightly different prices from others. So like the reason... It's Coke is the most popular of the, let's say, Coke, Pepsi, Dr. Pepper, etc. It's the most popular worldwide and everything. But that's not the reason why it's a good business. The reason it's a good business is that basically Coke can't take customers from Pepsi by lowering its prices a bit. Um, it definitely can't do that outside of supermarkets. It, can, it can't do it all that well in supermarkets either. But supermarkets is the only place where people are going to pay attention to what the price actually is. And where, you know, coupons and things like that can actually drive some um, changes in behavior. All the other way from the home stuff, it's not. They're not even asking what the prices. They're just going to say Coke or Pepsi or whatever every time they sit down at some place. Um, and the but the thing is, like, in some other parts of the country, right, say you're in Oklahoma or something, right, Coke can't take share from Dr. Pepper by cutting its prices by a lot. And so it knows that and doesn't try to do it. Why is that? because people are loyal to it. I mean, that's the big drink there versus Coke and people are loyal to it. Um in different parts of the country, it would be, you know, different drinks that are historically there. But no one's going to change their preference based on that. And you know, um someone was asking about like uh emailed me about cigarettes being a good business and stuff, you know, but why is that? And the really big thing is simply uh how it's sold, right? So like there's a lot of things that go into it. What happened in the United States, of course, is that advertising was basically stopped. Um, And so without advertising and you really couldn't introduce any innovations, any advertising anywhere to be new entrance into it. And it became very hard to take share from people that way to compete on another, you know, um, to, to compete. And so things that were already established, got bigger and bigger market share from that. So it wouldn't have been as good a business if it wasn't for the, um, negative societal change, right? But a big part of it is it's a very, very frequently purchased product. And so if a product is incredibly frequently purchased, no conscious thought will go into it. Habitual. Yeah. And so, and it's usually being purchased in a situation in which no one could guide you in a different way. So you're going to go into a store, you're gonna say what cigarettes you smoke, and you're gonna get them. If if you think about it, if you said to someone, "Oh, what is good?" They don't know. They'll say, <laughs> "I don't, I don't smoke. I don't know anything about this." Where yeah, they just know where they you know have to reach up to get it down from. Um, they they have no knowledge about that, right? Whereas there's lots of other products where that's not true and where that sales goes into it, right? So, and, and that's the same thing with like when we talk about. Um, uh, you know, beer or something like that, Uh, especially beer that's at a bar, right? Which is like how some of them, like Sam Adams and stuff, got started and eventually they expanded to other things. But that was a big advantage. If you could build it up there, um, then it would become a habitual thing where people wouldn't be worried about it. And so they're not worried about the prices. If the price is a dollar more than you expect, which, you know, um, it makes no difference to you. And so I just mean you're not, you can't get someone to switch from Shinerbach to, But lighter vice versa by pricing one at a dollar or a dollar fifty or something different from the other even though it's a huge percentage difference in terms of the sales uh price so where there's other products where you can definitely do that and so they're not as good um businesses to be in so that's like the number one thing i would say and so very high frequency of purchase is a good one or a tendency to never think about switching anytime that someone's in search mode to think about, oh, should I switch to something else is really a big problem. And so you want to be in businesses, obviously, that avoid people ever thinking that way. Um, so that, that's usually why I say, you know, you don't really want... It's not as good to be in the PC business or the washing machine business or the car business. Because those are the things where people say, oh, maybe I'll check what Consumer Reports has to say about it. Maybe I'll, comp- what features does this have versus that? What are the prices of these? Mm. Um, you want the things where they're not doing any of that stuff. Um, because if they are, then people will say, oh, I can compete on that. I can take customers from you. And so you get too high competition. Um, it, it, you know, but Munger's talked a little bit about this. It's also true that some of it's historical, though. There are industries that's unclear why in some countries um, there's been rivalry there. Like he's talking, I think, about Coke bottlers or something where um, there'll be rivalry between soft drink makers in one country that's a little excessive. And in another one, they get along really well that way without any price wars from time to time. And, you know, it's it's. Not that clear why, because economic theory would say, like, it doesn't really make a difference in each country, depending on that. It should be based on how realistic you think it is that you can stimulate demand and stuff by by cutting your prices. Um, but, you know, and that's Buffett's definition, right? He said, if you have to have a prayer meeting every time you raise prices, then it's a bad business. Mm-hmm. And um, that's the number one definition of it. So, And so textiles is a bad business, although in a good year, everyone in textiles would make money. Mm -hmm. It's just in all other years, you don't do well. It's only when it's in short supply.
0: So obviously everything makes sense in the present. What do you think gave Buffett the confidence that sees candies in your example, had that untapped pricing power?
1: I think Charlie told them basically, I mean, Buffett had had some experience with California at that point, but he wouldn't really have understood it. Otherwise, then I think Charlie telling him that that's what the situation is. Um, Because actually in that story about it, you know, he says specifically, oh, gee, the candy business, I'm not sure we want to be in that. And that's probably because he knows about whether it's Fannie Farm or Russell Stover or whatever, other box chocolate companies that don't have a lot of name recognition in other parts of the country. And so that's why he said like, oh, no, I don't think we want to be in that business.
0: Mm -hmm. So for ways to how to assess it, right? stay away from businesses that are not habitual stay away from businesses where the Mm -hmm. customers are in search mode often um are there any other things you could think of i mean would you put search mode um uh, like insurance in there right car insurance for example i mean it basically it's very short term so you could you know look around often right so so we didn't talk about this really much
1: on the podcast um with uh, about Geico, right but auto insurance in the u s is particularly good business potentially because um you're basically going you're basically required to have auto insurance, but you're not going to have you're probably not going to have more coverage and you're definitely not going to have more policies no matter how much anyone cuts prices to so no one so there's this pool and then you're saying like if you're Geico or someone. We can offer you one of the lowest prices, and so you'll take us for that reason. Um, but it would not necessarily be as good a business if people thought they could stimulate demand for it in other ways. Um, and so that it has a difference from like um, I think we may have talked about front door, and I've certainly talked about a home serve and businesses like those. Mm-hmm. Those uh, and also life insurance back in the days when people sold whole life insurance, you know, a hundred years ago, that was a really big business going out on the road and selling whole life insurance to people as a form of savings, really, instead of like what would become mutual funds and stuff like that, that people will replace it later, you know, in the 20th century. So that stuff you've really got to sell. Um, it, it really depends on you convincing people that they need these policies and getting that to a certain percentage of the people. And then it's based on the customer acquisition costs and all of that. The, stuff with um, that Geico and progressive are doing is a little better because of the um, laws in the United States, basically Um, it would be really nice to have something where, you know, imagine that there was a, and that there was a law that everyone had to have a smartphone, right. But no one could have two of them. You would hate it, you know, um, so yeah, the, so that would be really good for the industry overall, because you just want to be the person's preference for that one that you sell them. Um, and that would almost probably be the opposite way where that would be very promoting premium type things. Um, something like that with, with smartphones. Um, whereas in reverse with insurance where people don't, um, they probably don't have a strong opinion about the customer service. They definitely don't understand the policy and what it's covering and stuff very well. They just want the lowest monthly cost, basically. And so um, that does make it a better business that way. It, the The ones that are tricky and you have to be careful about are, um, we talked about Peloton. But uh, it can also be TVs and mattresses and whatever. These things that are durable to a certain extent, but could be based on a lot of marketing to people, a lot of financing, whatever, um, that we might be able to stimulate demand a lot for it. And if companies have a real awareness that they can do that, sometimes it can lead to excessive competition. Like, inherently, it should be a pretty good business. But if you know that if you drop your price a bunch, um, or you offer good financing terms or whatever, you can drive people to buy it who otherwise wouldn't. Um, You know, uh, because like the market for that kind of thing depends how many people are going to have an exercise bike. There's not a total addressable market. That's a realistic thing. It's based on how heavily are you prepared to market it and advertise and stuff and um, the cost. And especially like, can we break that down into a monthly cost that works for you and stuff? Um, So it's just very different that way and very susceptible to, you know, pricing issues. Um, like we saw where they built up too much inventory and then, you know, how do you get rid of that inventory and everything? Mm-hmm. Um, all that kind of competition is, you know, I mean, it's just common sense that you want industries that have a lot less competition. Um, but I mean, with the list that you have there, the, the thing is the, I, I guess people will say like, well, food and beverage, for instance, right? Like there's, there's a lot of competition in a sense, when I say competition, what I mean is, um, you know, or especially let's take hotels and restaurants, right? If you just count the number of small firms operating in an area or something, there's a lot of choices, mm-hmm. okay? But what I mean by competition is one, even competing with one company, but they're competing very aggressively with you is a problem. Uh, we talked about Hawaiian, um, I guess it's uh, Hawaiian holdings, the Hawaiian airlines, right? So- when Southwest went into Hawaii to try to build that up as a business for them to help out with what they have in the mainland and all that, um, they went in with prices that were unrealistically low. They're really below their cost that they could really operate the airline at. So they come in with like a price war um, to try to build up something that they think for the network will be beneficial in the long run. Um, that's something that you don't want. And that's the kind of competition I mean. In theory, what Hawaiian Holdings is, is really facing off with just one more, particularly um, uh, one more rival than they had before, really. But it has a big impact on them because of um, the fares that they're willing to charge. Because they're willing to charge fares that are not rational and stuff. And if you just take it as they're thinking that that's what they'll charge forever, um, what they're hoping to do is to take market share. Um, so and that's why we talk about the companies that are kind of the uh ones that think it's winner takes all. Mm-hmm. That's often a really bad one for uh for like profitability in the long term and everything is if if there's strong incentives to to have a belief that's a winner take all sort of situation, then you might have problems. Um because, you know, Uber and Lyft or whatever are gonna say, okay, we each have to uh, do things that maybe don't make as much sense right now because in the longer run we'll be bigger than our competitor and that will have advantages for
0: us. Are you surprised that restaurants are number three on this list? No restaurants. So
1: my memory is uh, that this um, study, right with the persistence by industry is like basically comparing each of them in that industry to each other. So like are, if you're the restaurant, at the top, quartile let's say Um, do you stay in that top quartile of profitability and that is true like restaurants do not shift around a lot in that Um, if you just look historically right if a restaurant has a model that's successful it tends to be a good model versus others um, consistently through its history right Um, whereas insurance is the other way to think about is are these reversion to mean situations so insurance, semiconductors, real estate, should you focus on like price to book or price to sales or something when buying them because it's all going to mean revert. They have a strategy that's working right now, but it won't work in the future, you know? Um, and I think that it makes a lot of sense that it, it works out that way, right? That they kind of get lucky at times and then they um, are unlucky at other times in those industries, right? That they just, they have the highest returns because they were particularly, um, you know, set up the right way for that moment in the industry. Uh, Even if you take something like semiconductors as a good example, Um, like your, some of them would perform differently, like at what part of the cycle in terms of like the leader would be really obvious if they had an advantage at a bad part of the cycle, but at a good part of the cycle it would be a lot less obvious. Everyone would be making really high returns and stuff. Um, restaurants have pretty consistent returns over time based on kind of if your model for your store works. Um, the downside is that, you know, there's a bunch of public restaurants that kind of don't ever have it working, mm-hmm. you know, like you look and the model is kind of not profitable and stuff and, you know, but once you have a Chipotle
0: or whatever, then you just go to more locations. Yeah. The ones that do work um, trade right at just extremely high, uh, valuations.
1: Yeah. I can't think of cases where I'm like looking at a restaurant it's got 10 locations they're all doing amazing with the model they have and they're going to do the same square footage and the same Mm -hmm. kind of store and they say let's go to 100 or something and then it falls off a cliff Mm -hmm. um, because they're really duplicating the same box all over the country Mm -hmm. so if that box works then it's just a duplication of it you know so that makes sense
0: yeah and and to take that point a little bit further can you think of a restaurant that you would like to own at a cheaper price and then it ever gets to that actual like buy point without there looking like, you know, there's some serious business problems or something like that. I can't think of too many restaurants other than Domino's pizza, for example, right? Right. Restaurant Domino's food is a great example Yeah. that that came back from the dead. There's not too many, right? If they traded a, a pretty high premium and you think it's a great business and then it gets to, let's say, uh you know, a, a 13 PE or something like that, perhaps there's yeah. something wrong and it's kind of hard to to weigh that that uh, the odds with that because uh, there aren't too many restaurants that go through issues and then come back. But Chipotle did, right? Chipotle had mm-hmm. an yeah. issue, but I don't even think it ever got down to like a, a crazy cheap um, valuation because it was already at like 50 or 60 times earnings or something insane.
1: Yeah, Greg's in the UK is one that after the financial crisis, its operating margin really collapsed. Um, And I looked into it and decided that was really due to poor foot traffic near their locations. Um, And so I wasn't really worried about it, right? Um, I didn't feel that it was really a shift. Although there were articles written about in British press about like, oh, their results are bad because they're unhealthy food and this and that. You know, McDonald's had that too, and then they shifted with some of it. Where they had this is going back twenty years with McDonald's, but they had a perception of being very unhealthy and everything, and they made some tweaks to things, and you know, um, not a problem after that. So it does happen um, that, like, so what I mean with McDonald's, which I was saying with Greg's, is I don't even know how much of it is actually the truth that way. Mm -hmm. Chipotle, we know what happened, right? So they had a food safety issue, Um, but the these other ones. there's, uh, there's a effort to explain it. We know the results are bad. We know like in the case of Greg's or whatever, we know that say 5% fewer customers walked in the door. The question is, why did they, is it because the people are casually because they're in the area doing that? Um, and there's less of that. And the financial crisis, um, is it because people are trying to be healthy? Is it because their consumer was really hurt financially or something? And they were just not spending at all. Um, You know, any of those sorts of things. Um, So uh, that's the danger is like with this profit persistency thing or mean reversion is um, there'll always be an explanation. We've talked about this before, right? Like someone will provide the explanation as if we know why this is happening, that results are bad, um, or even just the stock is down and give a really good explanation. What really happened in the case of Greg's, right, is that like sales dropped, um, operating margins collapsed because of that. They had I had t- a chart with like 25 years of operating margins I was looking at, and it was very consistent over time. But it got really lousy in that case. Um, and there'll be an explanation. And then the question is like, is that explanation true? Or is there some other reason for it, or is it, Um, you can just fall into that narrative, Mm -hmm. right? Like we, we've done a lot of talking on this podcast, which people don't normally do on investing podcasts about movie theaters. And so we've given a lot more information about what's really happening, that it is down, how far it's down, why it's down, whatever. But most people, it's going to be like our discussion of the local TV broadcasting thing. It's okay. Well, you know, it's just a trend. Is it in secular decline or not?
0: Do you think AMC will survive and come out the other side of this?
1: Um I don't know. Um we AMC was in very bad financial position before mm-hmm. COVID. Um and their management is strange, <laughs> very. Um so but they have raised capital um over time. So it you know, it's It's a very unusual situation. I I don't know what to say other than it's very unusual. They may, just because they've had an ability to raise a lot of capital, um, you know, and that's very unusual that that happens, um, but that can happen and that's important, you know. Um, We talked a little bit about that before. I've said, like, you know, that is an aspect of the dot-com thing that people overlook is some of those companies that went on to have success really did sell shares to the public in, like, the late 90s and stuff. Mm Mm-hmm at super inflated prices that put a lot of cash on their balance sheets that helped them through 2002 and three and stuff. I mean, um, that is, you know, AMC is an extreme example of that with the meme thing. But if sometimes, yeah, if you can raise a lot of capital um, at an inflated price or whatever, then, yeah, your business can get through it and people who buy it later will have a lot of success
0: with it. Um, Look at the shares outstanding in December 2020, $224 Not one point four billion or one point five.
1: Yeah, I mean, my my feeling on the AMC thing really is: look, how different is the situation than if they gone through bankruptcy?
0: <laughs> yeah, that's true. You know.
1: Yeah. I mean, you could have come up with a plan basically to say, well, this is how much capital will be injected, and this is what it will be, and and actually, it might have been a little bit better because you could have, you maybe got some concessions on debt things and things with that with this. Um, yeah, industry downturn. If you're gonna do that. Yeah, if you're going to say, okay, we're going to, whatever we just said, a huge, most of the equity in the company will um, get rid of, right? Mm-hmm. So if you had said to to resolve the debts that they had, we'll give you, you know, the vast majority of the company and dilute do down, but you won't eliminate all the equity. Um, yeah, it's it's not all that different than like going through a, a bankruptcy that way in terms of the outcome for long-term shareholders or something. I mean, or it should be. Depending on the price that the the stock's at, right? Um, that's the other thing that's been really weird about it is that, you know, sometimes the business performance has been bad, but the stock performance hasn't been. So, I mean, I think it's too confusing now, right? Because the preferred stock and everything, we have trouble figuring out right now, even what the enterprise value and everything is, I think. Because um, that just happened.
0: Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So I don't know what's reflecting the numbers, but it it often hasn't
1: been cheap versus like peers and stuff.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, Trying to eliminate that debt or negotiate it down or whatever probably would have been a lot easier when the box office wasn't back to what we think is going to be like 80% or thereabouts of uh, Mm pre-pandemic highs. It's probably, (laughs) they, they missed their opportunity to do that where they could walk away with more probably.
1: Yeah, and I should you know mention with that that these are very operationally leveraged companies. So obviously when I say that it's 80% back in terms of um, like box office dollars or something, that doesn't get you back to 80% in terms of profits. Um, a lot of these companies would be very cheap if that was the case. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, although Cinemark is somewhat cheap anyway, I think from looking at that, even if we just assume that it gets back to 80% or something. I mean, the number still has like, I think an expectation that then 2024 will be a bit bigger than 2023 and 2025, you know, to getting back to almost a hundred percent. But originally coming out of the pandemic, I think the projection was that you'd be at 95% or something by the end of this year. And that's not going to be the case.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, how worried are you about the writers' strike and like how that could affect the comeback?
1: Well, this is interesting. So, so there's both a writer strike and a, and a screen actors guild strike uh, both. So, um, it, I'm a little more optimistic about streaming about companies that have a streaming aspect to them now because they've um, raised their prices and are showing a, a tendency to do that kind of thing. They focused more on, um, sort of profitability, and when they'll achieve that in streaming things or free cash flow or whatever, the, the language has changed away from subscriber-driven language, too. We can have a few less subscribers than we did in the past, and it's okay. And um, that combined with uh, a strike does create a lot of potential for um, reducing spending in that area. So you could blame a lot on there being a strike to retool things and um, mm, commit to less stuff than you have been before so I would not be surprised you know I I, I feel like I don't know how big the backlog is but I think I said already that I feel like we reach peak number of shows and stuff by major streaming things of actually buying them and spending on it I think that will come down there won't be so many things Um, and they may take advantage of um, the strike and stuff to um, not do as much as they were going to do before. Um, so I think it's somewhat positive, longer term on it that way. Uh, shorter term obviously can be very negative, although mainly it would be negative for the movie theaters and stuff, much more so than the studios in terms of just bringing down your expectations for sales and earnings and stuff for the year following, right? So it's, um, right now, like in 2023, the effect it will have is you can't, um, you won't be able to use, uh, actors, um, or writers, but that usually is unimportant, uh, in your promotion stuff. Right. So you won't be able to have, um, stars go out there and promote a movie because that's against their unions rules. So that is, there were some changes to when things were released that I think was, that was the reason why. Um, So while I I did complain about like them releasing too many things close together, part of the reason for doing that may have been um, making sure that you got some things where you would be able to have someone out promoting a movie. You didn't want to have um, an inability to, you know, if you have a Tom Cruise type star or something that you can't have them go out and, and uh, promote a movie or something. Right. So, that's you know the only thing I see in terms of like immediate downside to the strike is that um the how it'll be resolved you know in terms of things that matter to us as investors and everything, we might get some increased transparency on streaming the The one thing that would matter a lot to people is that we might get like um more publicly available information on how many people actually watch shows and everything because that's probably something that writers would be very concerned about for royalties and everything. And so that's a very possible resolution is that we'll actually get a lot more information on who watches what Netflix shows and things like that because um, that will actually determine people's compensation. Um, We don't know if that'll happen, but that is a possible way that I could see things being resolved as one of the terms. So um, that, that would be, you know, useful because people... Don't necessarily have an idea of what show is a big show versus others and stuff. When we talk about movies, we know exactly by looking at the box office. I always say that about it. Like, you know, it's one of the most transparent that way. We can follow it and look at it. You know, it really has a level of data that's like um, you know, like an election or something in terms of the granularity of it and everything that you can see. So there's, there's no excuse for, like, not having feeling that you can invest in this company or that one because you don't have the data on it being able to follow it. Um, We have much better data on that than in some other industries. There's lots of other industries where we know what was shipped to someone or something, but we don't know how much they're selling through here. We know like estimates. They estimate on Sunday how many people like the day isn't even done. And they're giving you an estimate of how many people that weekend um, saw a movie or something. So it's, you know, and like we said, like the numbers does models for every single week. And they're not the only one who does that. So there's modeling of. You know, movies at least a week ahead of time, what it'll probably do, and everything. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the the big thing in this industry that's changing is the possibility of like changes in the behavior for studios. Because although we talk about entertainment stuff all the time, and this is one of the problems with like uh, circle of competence or something, right? Like people ask all these questions about it, and I'll say, well, but you shouldn't invest in any of them because I would just wouldn't touch any of them with what's been going on with streaming um because it's like we we're saying like a price war type situation everyone is pricing below what they need to make money on and they're putting more and more capital into it it's a disaster but at some po- point that'll change right it'll it's like with you know uh insurance right like some some point it'll be a hard market instead of a soft market or whatever and at some point um everyone'll be raising prices and cutting back on content spending and stuff um so you know we'll see when that is but these things have a significant lag in terms of their effects. So a strike that you see this year is only going to be noticeable in effects in a year and beyond in terms of how it really messes things up. Um, the writer's thing does mess it up in that they can't rewrite some stuff. So there'll be some excuses if something's bad, that that's why it's bad. It doesn't make sense or something is cause it couldn't do
0: rewrites on the set. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Got it. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with you both of us on the focus compounding podcast. If this is the first time you're tuning in, be sure to hit the subscribe button wherever you are listening or watching us here today. Uh, go to focuscompound.com to get access to investment write-ups from Jeff going all the way back to 2005. And of course, if you're interested in learning about our money management services, as Jeff, as the portfolio manager, uh, reach out to me at, at focuscompound.com. We'd love to start that conversation. And of course, you could go to the Invest With Us tab at focuscompiling.com uh, to get information on that. I uh, thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us, and we will see you in the next podcast. Take care.